Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, another good morning to you, church. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to meet me back in the book of 2 Kings in chapter 23, where Beth just read moments ago, 2 Kings in chapter 23. Uh, This morning, we finish the series that we've called The King of Kings. I just wanted to give you a few statistics about this series. Over the course of these messages, we've covered 200 plus years of history in the Bible, 200 plus years of history we've covered over this series. Today marks the 41st sermon that we've had in this series, and over those 41 messages, we've looked at 40 kings of Judah and Israel, and we've had six different preachers throughout the course of this series. Our lead pastor, Will Pereja, has carried the lion's share of the messages Certainly grateful to God for his word ministry. We've had a Portuguese brother who ministers at First Baptist Church in Lisbon, Portugal, who's preached in this series for us. We've had a Scottish brother who pastors and ministers in Dubai preach a message in this series. And a few weeks ago, we had a a Mexican brother who pastors in Zambia preach in this series. I've preached a few times, and we had a pastoral resident named David Engstrom who preached twice for us in this series. Six different people, one message, one book, well, two books split in half. And we've done this over the course of two years. We started this series in May of 2021. Now, we've been on and off in this series. It's not that we've gone straight through since May of 2021. So 200 plus years of history, 41 messages, 40 kings, six preachers, Two years, and the most important statistic of all, we've seen one Savior in this series. We've seen one God who rules over all things. We've seen one God from beginning to end who is orchestrating everything in this story for his own glory. And I hope that you've noticed that in your life. Your life was probably significantly different two years ago. Maybe you've had a child. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've started several new jobs in the past few years. Who knows how much your life has changed in the past few years, but can you not attest with the author of the books of Kings that God has been faithful, that he has been orchestrating all things in your life for his own pleasure? I just want to thank you all as well. I feel a deep accountability to God, and I know Will does as well to speak the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth as it is in Jesus. We feel that every time we step up here. But I also feel that from you all. I know that I'm gonna be looking people in the eyes who will demand that I speak the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth as it is in Jesus. And so I owe you a word of gratitude. It's a sincere joy to preach at this church And I know that you all want the word. I was so encouraged, just a brief story from last week. Sometimes we cover long sections of kings, and we don't have time to uncover every single detail in the story. But last week after the the sermon, two people came up to me and they said, 
you didn't really talk much about how Josiah died. And I was like, you're exactly right. I was just so encouraged that even over this long narrative that we had, two people were like, but you, you still didn't do everything in there. You know, they, they, it wasn't a critique, but they were curious, why, why did Josiah do what he did? I thank God for you all. Well, it's time to get into his word. And I want to tag this message with something that I think we could use as an alternate title for this series. So you might think back to our series and think, oh, King of Kings. But here's an alternate title. In the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies. Because this is where the original audience is. They're in exile. They're not at home. They don't have all of their comforts that they once had. And they're sitting by the waters of Babylon and they're weeping for what they have left behind in the presence of my enemies. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we calm our souls before you. We still them before you, asking that you would speak to us. And we ask that you would teach us to learn by paradox this morning that the way down is actually the way up to heaven, that the contrite heart is the rejoicing heart, that to bear the cross is to wear a crown, that Jesus Christ who suffered is actually exalted. Help us to learn the upside down nature of your kingdom. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, almost every good story that's ever been written has three things in common. It starts with once upon a time, once upon a time. This is how almost every good story starts. It might not use that exact phrase, but it starts once upon a time. Shortly thereafter, some sort of tension is introduced, a problem that must be resolved in order for us to have closure on this story, some sort of tension that has to be resolved. That's the second part. And the third part concludes with the words happily ever after. This is a good story. This is how every good story can be broken down. There's a sense of equilibrium that didn't exist throughout the course of the movie or the book that has now come to pass. This is what makes a good story. And the reason is because this kind of story works. We all love this kind of story. We yearn for a story like this, that there actually is closure to all of the tensions and all of the, the things that I feel in my life. And I think you could make a simple case that actually this is the story of the Bible. It began once upon a time. It's a true story, but it began once upon a time when God formed two creatures in his image. He called one Adam and the other Eve, and they were with him once upon a time. We see, of course, a tension, and this is not the time to go through that. But I believe that the Bible ends with happily ever after. So any good story is actually just a reflection of the true story. This is just a reflection of the story that God has been writing from day one until Christ's return. But what we have here at the end of 2 Kings is really upsetting because it's missing one of those pieces of the story, potentially the most important part of the story, and that is happily ever after. The book of 2 Kings does not provide us a happily ever after ending. And this is all the more significant because the book of 2 Kings, when it was originally written, 
This was the end of a story that actually began in Genesis 1 and was uninterrupted until this point. Think about this. John Goldingay helps us. He puts it like this. Whereas none of the books that precede 1 and 2 Kings come to a proper end, that is Genesis all the way to this point, that is they stop rather than finish, and they always drive you to turn over the page to the next book, 2 Kings does come to an end in the sense that there is no more of this particular story to tell. This is not really to say that the story achieves closure. It does not do so. After all, it ends up with both kingdoms defeated and their leadership taken off into exile. It leaves open what the future might hold. He's exactly right here, and this should upset us a little bit. This story does not end happily ever after, and the people are sitting there in exile. And this is the last authoritative book they have as they're sitting there, and they're wondering, what on earth is God up to? How am I supposed to live without a sense of closure to this story? How do I live in the tension? And beloved, we need an answer to that question too. Do any of you here this morning live with tension, with deep pain that's hard to make sense of? Do any of you wonder, why, Lord, why do I feel this tension? Why did that marriage need to end? Why did you not allow that child to see the light of day, even though we prayed for it every day as it was in the womb? Why did you allow me to have that dream job for two years and then you pulled the rug out from under me? Does anyone here live with a great sense of tension in their life? I'm just scraping the surface of the type of lack of closure that you might have in your life. And yes, I'll make the case that the Bible does end with happily ever after, but that doesn't make sense of all of your tension, church. We live with immense pain. We live with all sorts of questions that are hard to answer and oftentimes impossible to answer. Do you have perfect closure in your life? And if not, how do you live? Well, this is what the end of Kings wants to answer. It's going to give us an answer, and I think we can answer it with one word. Here's how we live without a sense of closure. We worship. We worship. We bless the name of God. We hallow his name. We bow our knee before the one who rules over all of these things. Does this provide a sense of closure? No, but it does give us a path forward as we try to live in the tension. We worship as elect exiles, not where we want to be. So here's the point that I think 2 Kings ends with, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. This is what not only the end of Kings teaches right here, but both books. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So what? Bless the name of Yahweh. The student of the Bible will realize that I'm plagiarizing this morning. I'm taking these words from the mouth of Job. And he's sitting there after God had given him so much and took more than almost anyone probably in this room has ever experienced. And he says, God gave, and God took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good from the Lord? And shall we not also receive evil? If God is God, and if God is sovereign, then both of these things exist in the mouth of those who love God. He gave, and he took away. Blessed be 
the name of the Lord. Now, we can't miss this. The circumstances in Job's life and the circumstances in 2 Kings could not be more different. Job is never given the closure that he needs about why he's suffering. The book of 2 Kings draws a one-to-one correlation between their sin and their suffering. You notice how those are vastly different circumstances, and yet the truth remains. God gives and God takes. And whether you're Job or whether you're living in exile, blessed be the name of the Lord. God wants to move us to worship here this morning, church. And so I want to just look at this text under two headings. It moves very fast, so I used quite a bit of action here to describe these movements. First, we're going to see kicking and screaming, and second, sitting and feasting. Kicking and screaming, and sitting and feasting. So let's let's look at the first point here, kicking and screaming, in verses 31 of chapter 23 to almost the end of the book, 25 and 26. Uh, Beth read a majority of this text moments ago, but here's what you need to know about this section. Yahweh himself is driving the people out of the land. God himself is the one pushing them out of the land that he once gave them. It's his sovereign hand. And as he does this, the kings of Judah are kicking and screaming against the Lord. They're resisting the will of God and the plan of God. And how many of you know that when we resist the will of God, nothing goes well? Nothing goes well. And there are multiple stages of the exile here. So oftentimes you'll hear about the Babylonian exile, singular, and that, that's true insofar as it goes. They're, they're all eventually in Babylon. But there are multiple stages of the exile here, three in this text. Now I've tried to give these kings nicknames to help us understand what's happening here, and we're just going to clip along because the author himself clips along. One of the major themes we've seen in this book is that idolatry and sinfulness is incredibly boring. You want a boring life? Be an idolater. And we see this here at the end of the book. So first we have Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz the captive. At the end of chapter 23, we meet this king and he kicks and screams against Yahweh by his conduct. He said to have done what was evil in Yahweh's sight in verse 32. And he's captured by Pharaoh Necho and he's no longer the king of Judah. That's Jehoahaz, he's the captive. Second, we see Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is the tax collector. And he's in 23, verse 34 through 24, verse 7. He's a puppet for Pharaoh Necho, who just took uh, Jehoahaz into captivity. And Jehoiakim taxes God's people heavily in order to send the proceeds to Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt. And three years after being installed as king, in verse 1 of chapter 24, he rebels against him. Now, this is what we need to see. God uses unbelieving kings to punish his people. So as he kicks and screams against Pharaoh Necho, who is he ultimately kicking and screaming against? He's kicking and screaming against God because it's God's will to push them out of the lands. So here's Jehoiakim, the tax collector. And Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, puts it so delightfully just to help us understand that this indeed is God. Look how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. He says, God dispatched a succession of raiding bands against him. This was God's doing. Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite. The strategy 
was to destroy Judah. Through the preaching of his servants and prophets, God had said he would do this, and now he was doing it. None of this was by chance. It was God's judgment as he turned his back on Judah because of the enormity of the sins of Manasseh. As he kicks and screams against Pharaoh, he's really just doing that to God himself. This was God's doing. Next, we meet Jehoiakim with an N. Not Jehoiakim, who we just saw, but Jehoiakim. Uh, I struggled to come up with a nickname for this guy. So it's a clumsy word, but we're calling him the surrenderer, the surrenderer. In 24, verses 8 to 17, we meet this man who's going to feature heavily at the end of this book. And he likewise does evil in the sight of Yahweh, and therefore he kicks and screams against Yahweh. But interestingly enough, he actually uh, flies the white flag. He surrenders to him. He doesn't kick and scream, and so he gives himself up. You'll see that in verse 12, and the exile continues slowly but surely. That's Jehoiakim. We'll see him again shortly. Fourth, we have Zedekiah, and I'm calling him the rebel. And here is where we need to pick up in our reading. Zedekiah, the rebel, in 24, verse 18. So let's, let's read these verses together. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamitel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of Yahweh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of king Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of Yahweh in the king's house in all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of Yahweh and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, 
the fire pans also and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold. And what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of Yahweh, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Sareah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city, he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war. And five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its lands. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, son of Shaphan, governor. Now when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan, the son of uh, Korea, and Sareah, the son of Tanhumith, the Netophathite, and Jezaniah, the son of the Maacathite, and Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Don't be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Zedekiah, he is the rebel. Chapter 24, verses 18 through 25, 7. He's a carbon copy of Jehoiakim. You think he would have learned his lesson from the previous rebel, but he turned out even worse than Jehoiakim. So he rebels against the king of Babylon, and the last thing he sees in his life are his sons being slaughtered in front of his eyes. Then they pluck out his eyes as if to leave a burning impression that this is your future. Now imagine taking a man with no eyes and putting him in handcuffs because you just want to shame him even more. They put him in handcuffs and they take him to Babylon captive. This is Zedekiah the rebel. Then in chapter 25, verses 8 to 21, we have an intermission of sorts where we're not told about kings. We knew disaster was coming upon Jerusalem. We just didn't know how big it was going to be. And this section is conclusive. This section is like knowing my, my brother lives in Grand Rapids. They just had a tornado touchdown in Grand Rapids. It's like you hear about a tornado, but you don't know how bad the damage is until you drive around the city. And this is what happens here in 2 Kings. This is conclusive. They take everything that would have brought happiness to the people of God, and this thing is over. Then in chapter 25, verses 22 to 26, we meet Governor Gedaliah, and I call him the fashionably late. Uh, it's almost pitiful, but we meet a pretty good guy here at the end. He's not a true king. He's merely a governor, and he's got good policy from the Lord. 
but he's a little too good, a little too late, and he can have no lasting impact on the people of God because he's murdered. He's fashionably late. He does good, but it's a little too much, a little too late. God's people here are taken captive. God had given them the land. And now what is God doing? He's taking the land away from them. He gave them the temple. And now he's taking the temple away from them. He gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. And now he's taking away their opportunities. The Lord gives, beloved. And the Lord takes away. And what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to bless his name. Because the greatest sin, the most sinful sin at this point, would be continuing the path that led them here. You're in exile because you forsook the Lord. So don't keep forsaking the Lord in exile. God will bring you to a place that you would despise based on all earthly standards if that's what it takes to get your heart. God will bring you to the worst place you could ever imagine if that means he'll get your heart back. And that's what he's doing here in exile. He's taken away all of the gifts that the giver gives in order that they might focus on the giver himself. And what are we to do in situations like this? If you feel like Job and you can't explain it, or like the people of Kings, and you know why God is taking something from you, what are you supposed to do? Go to Christ. Worship him. Bow the knee before him. Either way, his name is to be praised. And this is so important for our discipleship as a church. Because I talk to people, and I know this from my own experience. When you sin, when you sin real bad, where's the last place you often want to go? To Christ. We feel so dirty. We feel so messed up. We feel like we've screwed things up beyond the point of repair. How could I go to Christ right now in all of my misery and all of my shame? That's the way the natural mind thinks. I don't think I can put it much better than Robert Murray McShane. Keep in mind, this man died at 29. He wrote this a few years earlier in his journal. He says this, I feel when I have sinned an immediate reluctance to go to Christ. He's saying, this is how I feel. I don't want to go to Christ when I sin. I'm ashamed to go. I feel as if it would do no good to go, as if it were making Christ a minister of sin, to go straight from the swine trough to the best robe and a thousand other excuses. But I am persuaded that they are all lies direct from hell. Have you sinned this week? Have you gotten yourself into more trouble than you could ever imagine? The people of Israel did. Are you going to do the worst sin yet and continue in that path? Are you going to turn and go back to the one who loves you? Beloved, the best time to go to God is right now. Whether you feel like you've had a bunch of spiritual victories or a bunch of spiritual losses. The best place for you to go is to the one who can wipe clean your sin. And that is to Christ alone. I hope that's both encouraging and a word of correction to some of us here this morning. We are not making Christ a minister of sin by going to him. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Don't rob him of the opportunity to do what he's always done and to wipe clean 
your sin. Turn back to him. Bow in worship at the name of God. This is what the exiles were meant to do as they lived in Babylon. Well, as we move to the second movement, we need to notice a contrast. As the kings of Judah are kicking and screaming, this last picture we see of Jehoiakim is him sitting and feasting. Whereas there in captivity, he's experiencing freedom. So let's read the final paragraph of these amazing books in verses 27 to 30. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him. And he gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. End of story. Jehoiakim here is sitting and feasting. He's the king who gets the last word in this whole story. Now, we need to be very careful here. We need to be careful to notice what it says and what this text suggests. There's a world of a difference. It, it says a few things and it suggests a lot of things. You'll notice that it's fairly brief, very brief, and there's almost no theological commentary about what's happening here. You get what I'm saying here? It, it's not like the editor of First and Second Kings is saying, you know, as the king did this to Jehoiakim, that corresponds to this spiritual blessing. We don't get any of that. We're left with this story to figure out what this might mean for the people of God. Well, 37 years into his captivity, Jehoiakim is sitting there imprisoned. And let's just think hypothetically for a moment. I know this isn't in our Bible, but let's let's just try to imagine this scenario. He's sitting there, 37 years a captive. And the Babylonian king's servant comes to him and he's like, hey, Jehoiakim, there's a new king evil Merodach, and he says, you can go free. And Jehoiakim's looking around at the other, you know, those who are captive. He's like, me? Me? I can go free? Like, yeah, he he said, Jehoiakim, you can go free. This is the first thing he does. He sets Jehoiakim free. Why does he do this? Look, look Look at your Bibles. We're not told. We're not told why this king acted favorably towards God's king. Well, then the king, we're told, speaks kindly to him. And let's just imagine again. Okay, he's finally set free, and it's been a long time since he's had this much freedom. And he's like, is the rug about to get pulled out from under me? Is this too good to be true? Am I getting set up? Is someone filming this? Like, is is something about to collapse on me that I'm not aware about? No, the king speaks kindly to him. He's not messing with him. What an amazing story so far. Well, next he's given a seat and clothes that correspond to his new status. He's sitting there. Okay, you set me free. You're speaking kindly to me. This isn't a joke. Now you want me to sit here close to the head of the table? You want me to sit here at the king's table, right where the most prominent people sit? 
Jehoiakim's got to be losing his mind in wonder. Like, what's happening here? Yes, sit here above all the other kings who are in exile. Sit here. The king wants you to sit here. And put off your prison garments. Oh, and here's some garments that correspond to the dignity that now you have in exile. God is leaving his trademark grace on the end of this book. God is leaving his trademark grace that he always carries around with him. Finally, fourthly, he dines regularly at the king's table. He's given a regular allowance. Jehoiakim sitting there after the first day. Is this a joke? Am I being punked? They're like, no, come back tomorrow. I can come back tomorrow for more food? For more delicious food at the king's table? Yeah, and the next day. Are you insinuating all week I can come back here and sit at the king's table? Yeah, until you die, you can sit here at the head of the king's table where he sets you free. He's spoken kindly to you. He's put off your prison garments. He's given you new threads. And now you can have a seat at my table until you die. What an amazing end of this book. Now notice whose name we don't see here. Where is God in all this? Where's the name of Yahweh? I know some of us read different translations. I'd be very curious. Can anyone raise their hand and say they have Yahweh's name, the Lord, all caps in their Bible? Anyone? His name isn't here. Where is God in all of this? What's been one of the major melodies we've seen in this book? That God is orchestrating all things in this story. God is the one ruling and reigning over all of these things. So do we really need to be told that even though Yahweh's name isn't here, that Yahweh is actually the one present doing these things? Do we need to be told on every single page of the Bible that God is indeed in control? Beloved, do you need your name written in the book of the Bible with a sentence next to it saying God is sovereign over your life in order for you to believe it? Can't we read between the lines and see that even though this is credited to evil Merodach, this is actually God himself being kind to his king? Could it be that there's actually hope for the people of God? even though they've screwed it up as bad as humanly possible. Yahweh is in control of all things. And if Jehoiakim had come to trust Yahweh in exile, he could join in with the psalmist and say, in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table before me. My cup overflows. This cup never runs out. He's providing for me every single day of my life. In the presence of my enemies, I'm sitting and I'm feasting. Yahweh gave. Then he takes away. And now we see him giving again. And what are we to do? We are to bless the name of Yahweh. Whether he gives or whether he takes, this is our plot in life. To bless his name. The good news for the exiles was not even necessarily that the king was eating. Because here's the thing. What about all the other people who aren't royal blood? We're not told about them. Oh, cool, this guy gets some food, but I'm eating who knows what. So what's the good news for them? It's not necessarily that the king is sitting and feasting. It's that God is with them in exile. 
God is the one who, even though they've forsaken him, he will never forsake them. He'll discipline them for sure, but he will never forsake them. God is with them in exile. Some fascinating literature for you to read this afternoon is the beginning of Ezekiel. The most surprising thing to, in the book of Ezekiel is he's sitting in Babylon and he sees the glory of the Lord going into Babylon. Yahweh is with them in their darkest moments in order to capture their hearts. I had a delightful time yesterday morning with two young men at our church. We were drinking coffee uh, and Max Muller was one of them. And he said something to me yesterday morning that I couldn't stop thinking about all day. We were, we were talking about all sorts of things. And he talked about this period of his life when he was diagnosed with a chronic illness. And he felt as if everything in his life was just fading away and, and everything was being lost on him. And he said, it was in that period of my life that I realized that the only thing I had was Jesus Christ. He alone is who I had in all of my loss. And this was the realization that the people of exile were supposed to have. It's the same realization that Max had in that phase of his life, that you can have all of this world. Just give me the covenant Lord who loves me and cares for me. And ultimately, who's going to give me more than I could ever imagine. I want you to notice a few other subtle hints here. Notice how Jehoiakim is called. He's called the king of Judah twice in this very short passage. He's called the king of Judah. That's significant. Well, they're not in Judah anymore, but he's still the king of Judah. A subtle hint that maybe God did not go back on his word to David, that he would always have a son who sits on his throne. Now, again, this is 37 years into his captivity. This is a long time, almost four decades. A lot happened between when he got there and this story. So we just have to wonder, why did the author choose this story of all the stories that he could have picked? Could it be that there is a word of hope for the people of God? Now, we need to recognize that all the people of God needed to do in exile was think about where God found them in order to find hope. They might feel like they're at the worst point in human history, but all they need to do is go back to the time when God picked them to be his. Deuteronomy 7. I didn't pick you because you were the richest. I didn't pick you, Israel, because you were the most numerous on the face of the planet. I didn't pick you because you were the best of all the nations. I picked you because I set my heart in love on you. I picked you when you were low, when you were poor, when you were weak, when you were nothing. So if God picked them in that scenario, who's to say he's going to leave them in exile? Just because they're low, they've been low before, and that's exactly when God picked them. I love how John Flavel puts it. He says, as God did not at first choose you because you were so high, so he will not forsake you because you are low. None of you cleaned yourself up to the point that Jesus chose you. He found you as an enemy. That's how we're described in the New Testament. He found you as a sinner. He found you weak. So if you feel weak right now in your sin, he didn't pick you when you were high, so why is he going to forsake you when you're low? This is the gospel for the people of Israel. 
This allows them to sing even in the same breath where they sigh. This allows them to rejoice even with tears welling up in their eyes because they're in so much pain. If God is with them in exile, then they can bless the name of Yahweh. But once again, we ask, what on earth is God up to? If the kings of Israel are kicking and screaming, if Jehoiakim is sitting and feasting, then God is ruling and reigning. He has all things in control. And where do we come in but to bow and worship at the feet of Jesus? God doesn't give us everything we want to know. He gives us everything we need to know. And yes, in the New Testament, we have a beautiful picture of happily ever after that we see at the end of Revelation. But in the meantime, we live with all sorts of tension. We live with such a lack of closure in our life. We live with so many experiences that we can't quite make sense of. And we certainly have more hope than the people of Israel. Because just as we have a hint here in Jehoiakim that God isn't done with his promise to David, so we turn our Bibles a few pages to that glorious first chapter of our New Testaments where we see the king that we've actually been waiting for. And beloved, Jehoiakim is on that list. But his name is overshadowed in Matthew chapter 1 by the name above all names, the King Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. And in the life of Christ, God is giving and he is taking and we bless his name. God had been giving himself to his people time and time again. Hey, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. But who would have thought that God would give himself in a little child who they called Jesus? He gives his son to us in the incarnation. And not only that, but he gives himself to the point of death even death on a cross. The Lord gives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that's not it. He takes away our condemnation on the cross. He takes away our shame on the cross. He takes away our orphan status on the cross. So God gives us his son. He takes away all of our shame. And what do we do? We bless his name. Could it be that God is so sovereign in your life that he rules over your triumphs and over your defeats. He is the all-wise God. Maybe we can't make sense of it, but here's what we can do. We can trust him, and we can bless his name in the waiting. So if you're in the presence of the worst period of your life, if you're in the darkest season you've ever been in, blessed be the name of Yahweh. If you're in the presence of a bunch of coworkers who hate the name of Jesus, bless his name. If he's taken everything from you, something you could never imagine living without, blessed be the name of Yahweh. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. So even if you're sitting in the presence of your enemies, even if you're surrounded on every side by devils and demons and people who hate your guts, in the presence of those enemies, he prepares a table for you and we bless the name of Jesus Christ. The capital crime 
for the people of God is not worshiping him. It is the worst response we could ever have to a God who has given us everything in Jesus Christ. This leaves no one out of the purview. If you feel like God has given you everything or taken away everything, blessed be his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.